This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Christy Schreier, and we're here to look at works that changed the world and changed us. We hope you've enjoyed this series on Romeo and Juliet, and we ask that if you did, please give us a five-star rating. It moves us up on the algorithms, you know, those weird spirits that control the interwebs. Hmm, and I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Uh, Christy, speaking of those algorithms, uh, of course, our minds go straight to the pressures of social media, and that's on your mind. But in some ways, as we finish out Romeo and Juliet, we can see that social pressure has been detrimental, at least since the 1300s. Uh, if you are of the mindset that this is a true story anyway, how's that for a segue in Italian? Well, you know that I'm a firm believer that this is a true story at some <laughs> level, maybe with a different ending if I could write it myself. But <laughs> mm. Well, indeed. And, uh, you know, although it's fun to think of Juliet as being real when we think about visiting her home in Verona, um, as we come to the conclusion today, if we think of her as a real girl struggling with real anxiety and intense pressure, the the story gets so much more tragic. Oh, there's no doubt. If you remember episode one of the series, um, we discussed how in comedies we can laugh at the protagonists because we're better than they are. But in tragedies, we can grieve for the protagonists because they are better than we are and they don't deserve what's coming. Uh, Here as we finish out this book, these two protagonists have gone from silly teenage lovebirds we all related to and laughed at slash romantic comedy characters. (laughs) Uh, And then they move to these incredibly isolated children who find despair and don't see a way out when everyone else in the world can easily see one. I mean, they're tragic heroes. Well, you know I agree with that. I mean, Romeo is lovable, albeit a little silly in Act 1, as he pines away for Rosalind all the way until the moment he sees Juliet. (laughs) And then he immediately falls head over heels for her. 
Then, of course, you've heard me talk admiringly about the way Shakespeare has portrayed Juliet, I think, from the very beginning. She's strong. She's extremely intelligent. She's very decisive. She seems to understand how to understand herself. And she's so young, but she seems to know a little bit about what she wants for her life. Well, yes, and what we discussed in episode two is that she may be the only one in Verona that is all those things. Uh, Verona is a wreck. The feud is uh, pointless. The teenagers and young adults are drifting around with nothing to do. Uh, The adults are self-involved, looking out for their own advancement, um, if that. And the prince is weak, basically just succumbing to what the important or cool people want him to do or say. And uh, we ended episode two with Romeo under Juliet's balcony and these two teenagers trying to escape all this by pronouncing true love to one another. Uh, But both teenagers (laughs) desperate to get away from the chaos of Verona and into a private world of their own making and something all teenagers dream about. But those who live in particularly chaotic surroundings can certainly identify with this fantasy. Oh, I totally agree with that. It's a lovely fantasy. It's youthful. It's optimistic. It's dreamy. And I want to agree with another artist who has gotten inspiration from this play, the popular pop artist, Taylor Swift. Now, many people know Taylor Swift because she's been like a mega gazillionaire, you know, superstar hit with her pop music. But and I'm sure most people know that she got her start in Nashville and country music, which is just up the road from here and us in Memphis. And one of her first songs, and I have to be honest, it's still my favorite song of hers is called Love Story. And it's about Romeo and Juliet. Hmm. Well, you know. All right. I like that song, too. Uh, and if I thought we could play it without getting into copyright trouble, I'd, I'd play a clip from it. But uh, according to her description of how the song came about, she had a boyfriend at the time that her parents didn't like. How many people have lived that story? And her experience with this boyfriend reminded her of the great classic Shakespearean work. And she identified with the dream of Romeo and Juliet. Yes. And although I really didn't know that about the backstory of the song... I do believe that Taylor Swift really tracks with Shakespeare and really understands the character of Juliet probably more than I would think a lot of readers do, really. I do want to read a section of her song because I think that is allowed according to the copyright (laughs) laws for educational purposes and because I really do think that uh, Swift's interpretation of Juliet's thinking is absolutely spot on. So this is a clip. Well, I'm going to read it. I'm going to say, this is going to be hard to read without (laughs) humming the melody line. Yeah, I'm going to read it. This is what Taylor Swift writes uh, in her famous song, Love Story. Romeo, take me somewhere we can be alone. I'll be waiting. All there's left to do is run. You'll be the prince and I'll be the princess. It's a love story, baby. Just say yes. Romeo, save me. They're trying to tell me how to feel. This love is difficult. But it's real. Don't be afraid. We'll make it out of this mess. It's a love story, baby. Just say yes. Oh, oh. (laughs) That (laughs) part, I mean, (laughs) I know. I got tired of waiting, wondering if you were ever coming around. My faith in you was fading when I met you on the outskirts of town. And I said, Romeo, save me. I've been feeling so alone. I keep waiting for you, but you never come. Is this in my head? I don't know what to think. 
And this is the part where, you know, she goes she off. She deviates. But, yeah, but she's right. I like I, I think she's on it. He knelt to the ground and pulled out a ring and said, Marry me, Juliet. You'll never have to be alone. I love you, and that's all I really know. I talked to your dad. Go pick out a white dress. It's a love story, baby. Just say yes. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so what are you seeing here that really gets your attention? Well, Swift really understands that, first of all, Juliet's the primary character here. And it's one of Juliet's major motivating forces is that she is alone. And, of course, we know that from the play, that she's more alone than Swift really even details in the song. I mean, how could she? It's just a little song. Her parents are forcing her to marry an old man. Her nurse won't help her. She has no one to talk to. And she desperately needs help. And that's the feeling that you get in this song. She desperately needs help. And where we left off last week, I think it was abundantly clear with that final soliloquy that she um, that she has right before she drinks the poison that Friar Lawrence gives her is that she's in despair. She sees absolutely no way out. What, what do you call that? Like ideating suicide or ideating? Ideation. I, ideation. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a little bit of that going on. As she speaks of drinking the poison, and let me say, this isn't the first time she talks about that. For the second time, we're going to see her lift a dagger and refer to killing herself. Well, uh, what's nice about the Taylor Swift version um, is that Swift does give her a way out. I mean, she rides off in a pickup truck. With I Romeo. know, good old Tennessee style. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that part too. First of all, it is very Tennessee. But as you recall from episode three, that's not how Shakespeare builds our story. In Act Three of this play, Tybalt, the only real antagonist in the whole thing stabs Romeo's best friend, Mercutio. Romeo then goes and kills Tybalt in a sword fight, and immediately he has to flee because the prince had previously stated he was going to execute anyone else involved in the feud, although I don't think anyone ever believed that he would. He hadn't done anything like that to this point. And perhaps true to form, you are correct. I mean, he has no plans of executing Romeo. Uh, Romeo is banished to live 20 miles out of town. In a place called Mantua, <laughs> I guess we can think of it as the the suburbs. He's been he's been banished to the burbs. Uh, the end of the world, <laughs> a fate worse than death, no doubt. But uh, right before Romeo heads out, he stops for one steamy scene Woo-hoo! with Juliet climbing up that balcony and uh, heading out at first light, or as they put it, at the singing of the larks. Oh yes, the singing of the larks. <laughs> But he leaves Juliet, which is something I don't get. Like, my modern mind can't wrap itself around that idea. Uh, it's one of those things that I think a lot of readers read and look at in disbelief. Because you should be thinking, why aren't you running away, Juliet? Why don't you go with them? That's what Taylor Swift would do. Clearly, she's all she's told us. And then we'd have the pickup happy story. <laughs> yes, but of course we would not have a tragedy. Oh, there is that. <laughs> and this is Shakespeare's play, so he gets to do what he wants. And so from here on out, uh, if anyone sat back and thought through all the endless chances there were to change the narrative, I mean, the the possibilities are infinite. But again, isn't that also what youth is about? I mean, isn't that what life's about? And maybe that's why we like this play. We all know what it's like to look back 
and see the missed opportunities. And another thing that really catches my attention is the exaggeration of the problem. When you're young, everything feels like the end of the world. Even 20 miles out of town seems like the end of the world. And every problem is the worst problem anyone's ever faced. And everything is possibilityless or until it isn't. <laughs> you see no end, and then all of a sudden, you catch a break, and the world is beautiful again until the next catastrophe, and on it goes. And the younger you are, the more deeply you feel everything. Well, I mean, that is so true. In the first grade, an apple accidentally being left in your desk and rotting, and then the other kids laughing. That shame can last 10 years. That's a true story, by the way. Did that happen to you? <laughs> No, but it happened to one of my kids. Sweet, I know. In Romeo and Juliet, the outside observer, now we're here safely, 400 years removed, can look back at at this couple and say, ah, exiled 20 miles down the road. That's not worthy of death. But in that moment, Romeo can't see that, not from his perspective. Well, we can't not. That youthful passion, I mean, that's what's great about being young. And the longer you can hold on to the, you know, the passions in life that it has to offer, I mean, the better. But the downside is uh, sometimes that passion keeps you from proper problem solving, as we saw. So instead of spending the night planning, Romeo leaves and Juliet runs to Friar Lawrence, who as a reasonable adult and man of God should have gone to the Capulus with the truth and advocated for these two teenagers. I mean, uh, perhaps protecting them with his priestly authority. And in fact, the case could be made that, again, we see Shakespeare suggesting elements of the political world uh, and it's wrongly transcended over the, the spiritual. Friar Lawrence should have exerted his influence towards counseling those obviously hurting families and uh, advocating for this noble girl, but instead, Maybe because he's misguided, maybe because he's scared of the political ramifications of facing down the powerful, or maybe he's just a foolish person. But for whatever reason, uh, he doesn't give any religious or spiritual counsel at this time. He doesn't push the pause button for anybody. Well, no. And in Verona, as I've said, adults don't act like adults. He's just like everyone else. And he conceives an insanely complicated plan of misdirection. Juliet is to take a potion, basically to be put in a cataleptic trance. A cataleptic trance. Um, (laughs) I would like to interject something here, just in case anyone gets any crazy ideas. This drug is an element of fantasy. There is no such thing as a cataleptic (laughs) trance-inducing drug. (laughs) FYI. Then what happens in the play, at least this is a literary kind of interesting point, is that for the first time, we're going to see a sizable gap in time because this has been such a rushed play. We've talked about that being one of the ideas. Rush, 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 rush. But 36 36 hours, let me say, are now going to be skipped over. Friar Lawrence gives Juliet this drug on Tuesday morning. What happens next, we don't know. The next thing we know is on Wednesday night, we see Juliet telling her father that she's okay with marrying Paris. They're going to be married... The very next morning, that's the plan. But again, instead of jumping out that balcony and running away in the middle of the night, she drinks the poison and falls into the trance, which that plan works for the moment, a little bit. 
The parents cry. They have a funeral. They take her to the family vault. Which brings us to Act 5, the final act. And and again, we're reminded uh, that there really is not a true conflict in the play. There's no antagonist. I mean, who's persecuting these teenagers? Uh, It's not the prince. Juliet's mom swears to kill Romeo, but she's really not taking any action. And uh, Mr. Capulet is forcing Juliet to marry Paris. Uh, but we don't really even understand why. I mean, why do we have to act with such haste? Why is there such a sense of panic here? Uh, in, in some obvious ways, this just doesn't make sense. And Shakespeare makes the pace deliberately hectic. Every audience member is forced to ask that question. Why, why, why? Like they're being taken along on a right. runaway train. Yeah, you do beg the question. And yet, and I brought this up last week because I think Shakespeare introduces this idea in the first sonnet as a prologue, in the prologue, haste itself, I think, develops into being the primary antagonist. Haste is the antagonist. And of course, if we think about it, that happens a lot. I can speak for myself. How many times have I rushed into something and then thought, oh, that was a mess up? Sometimes I don't even know why I have to think about that. And why do I feel so compelled to act so quickly and impulsively? But there does seem to be at times some sort of metaphysical pressure in the universe that pushes us and you just like can't stop yourself. It's hard to resist. Well, that's we've, what you're going to blame it on? I think there's a thing to haste and impulsiveness. You know, some of us have rushes to judgment and rushes to action. I've been, But it's a metaphysical I've been pressure guilty. of the universe? Yeah, oh. I'm not blaming myself. Okay, I'm- <laughs> I'm glad it's not like low impulse control. No, Shakespeare says it's the stars. Oh, okay. Uh, well, we, we've we all impulsively shopped uh, for sure, and, and we've rushed to judgments about people. That's common. I know people that have quit their job or even worse, fired someone and all because they were compelled by this impulsive need to rush and a mob mentality inside your own mind. I mean, the, the casinos are criminal about it. <laughs> they do. They have monetized that. They have. <laughs> well, another problem with being hasty, and I have this problem too, is when you are in a hurry, you forget about things that you shouldn't forget. You forget obvious things that are important. You may forget to shut the garage door and then the house gets broken into. You may forget to look both ways and you run into a parked car in a parking lot or you may forget to pick up that assignment that you worked on that you spent all weekend preparing and then don't even turn in. When we hurry, we overlook the obvious. Well, and and I want to digress here for just a moment. Uh, Speaking about being careful and safe, when you go to London as an American... The traffic doesn't run the same way, and stepping off a curb the way you would in the United States is very different in uh, London. So Look and, both ways. Right. Don't, don't be hasty. Don't be hasty, because you've got to reorient yourself. Um, well, in Friar Lawrence's case, you, f- you forget about the Black Death <laughs> that is forcing the town you live in to be in quarantine. Well, yeah, now having lived in quarantine, I really don't know how one overlooks mm. the pandemic. But uh, what you can, what can you tell us about this epidemic that clearly slipped Friar Lawrence's mind? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, well, in, eight, in 1347, there was uh, an infectious pestilence, as it was called, and it reached Europe. And uh, it was the most frightening epidemic in world history up to that point. And honestly, much, much, much scarier 
scarier than the COVID pandemic. And uh, the Black Plague or the Black Death killed 25 million people in Europe within a space of three years. And quarantine was the only thing people knew how to do to keep it from spreading. And it was literally nicknamed the Black Death. And they did a terrible job of keeping it from spreading. Yeah, but the, and the name is kind of ominous. You know it's coming. It's a little <laughs> ominous, yeah. It's yeah. called the Black Plague. <laughs> so giving a message to a friar who's going to visit a sick guy on the way out of town, that comes across as a misguided plan. <laughs> Failing the say out loud test, One as we many. say. <laughs> you know, obviously we don't know the protocols of 14th century Italy, but we do know that the the searchers or the, the health officials wouldn't let Friar John leave town after having been exposed to the Black Death. And so we have the literally century-old debate as to whether Romeo and Juliet is a tragedy of character or just a tragedy of fate. Is it because of a flaw in their character, in Friar Lawrence's character, in someone else's character, that bad things happen? Or is it, and we're going to see all this mis, uh, these circumstances, this happenstances of just bad luck. Is that, is this really about bad luck? And of course, when things happen to us in our lives, we have that same thing. How much of this was a responsibility of a person? How much was it just bad luck? To what do I owe my bad situation? Whose fault is it? Or is it the stars? <laughs> As he has suggested. Well, obviously, I would think uh, in my life, it's obviously the stars. Of course. Okay? More likely poor choices. <laughs> well, maybe. Although what we see in this place is not a pervasiveness of malevolence or even really true stupidity. Nobody is really evil. No one is really horribly stupid. A little you know, flaws here and there. But as we look at Act 5, there's just a little bit of fault to spread around to everyone. We're going to start with Romeo opening Act 5 with more irony and more foreshadowing. So, Gary, why don't you read the very beginning of Act 5. We're going to start today with Romeo, uh, Romeo's lines. If I may trust the flattering truth of sleep, my dreams presage some joyful news at hand. My bosom's lord sits lightly in his throne, and all this day an unaccustomed spirit lifts me above the ground with cheerful thoughts. I dreamt my lady came and found me dead. Strange dream that gives a dead man leave to think, and breathe such life with kisses in my lips that I revived and was an emperor. Ah me, how sweet is love itself possessed, when but love's shadows are so rich in joy." So this is a really interesting way to start the act because you can see that Romeo is in Mantua. So he's been exiled. You know, that was the end of the world just a few moments ago. But uh, here he's happy. We see a lot of happy imagery. But strangely, it's also mixed with all this imagery between death and love. He's dead. He's being kissed. He's being revived. <laughs> to which his uh, servant Balthazar brings him the bad news that Juliet has died. Yeah, and that changes it immediately. <laughs> I mean, we're going to see a great theme emerge through this exchange with Balthazar. Romeo decides right then that he has to leave right this minute to do something that the audience is going to find out, you know, just as soon as Balthazar leaves, and it's very, very destructive. But on his way out, Balthazar says this, I do beseech you, sir, have patience. Your looks are pale and wild and do import some misadventure. So in other words, here we go. Slow 
down. So for the first time, somebody's saying slow down. And it's Balthazar. <laughs> uh, and of course, Romeo doesn't want to have patience. He doesn't want to think slowly. And, and instead, he screams out, I defy you, stars. This, of course, um, is the language in the prologue, defying the tragedy of fate. I mean, in fact, blaming fate. But Mercutio told him in Act 1 not to believe dreams. Mercutio has warned him dreamers often lie. I know, and there's nothing but irony here for the person that's watching the play because we know Juliet is not dead. There is a verse in the Bible that says, They have eyes, but see not. And it's an, ex- it's an interesting expression, and it's worthy of thought, because how can you possibly have eyes and not see? But I have to be honest, the older I get, the more I understand. It's often possible to have eyes and not see. This is a tangent, but it reminds me of when I moved to Japan after I graduated from college, I had taken a teaching job, and I'd moved to this town called Shizuoka. When I got there, I remember thinking, wow, this place is just like the States. They have malls, McDonald's, cars. I looked around, and I saw a lot of things, but I didn't understand what I was seeing. I had eyes, but I couldn't see. So after a year of living there, I began to notice and see things that I hadn't understood from the beginning. I had been looking with my eyes at first, but it took a long time to be able to really see. Yes, and being able to really see is about context and putting in a comparison to the world around you. And uh, it, it is a caution to be careful about interpreting what you see. I mean, knowing how to correctly interpret what you see is something that we all have to become aware of, but, but we often don't pay attention. And in Act 5, it seems no one correctly interprets what they see. That's going to be it the whole way out. This idea has actually been alluded to in Act 1. I like this line. When Capulet's servant comes up to Romeo the night before the party, he has this invitation list, and he asks if Romeo can read the letters because he can't interpret what he sees. And he literally asks Romeo, can you read anything you see? What we are going to find out is that no, Romeo cannot read anything he can see. In fact, no one can. And perhaps maybe that's what fate is. Maybe that's the definition of fate. Are we able to correctly interpret and make judgments based on what we think we see? Great question. Scene two is about Friar Lawrence learning that Friar John has not delivered his letter. And so in another really strange set of circumstances, he begins to worry, but strangely not about Romeo, only about Juliet. Uh, Juliet will be awake in three hours, and he knows he needs to get her out of the creepy skeleton infested <laughs> tomb. I would have appreciated it. Which is part of the bad plan. So he asked Friar John to go get a crowbar, but uh, unimaginably he altogether forgets Romeo. And that seems to be a tragedy of, of character. How can a man who has devised this really complex plan forget a main component of his own plan? Oh, that's so true. But that's not the only twist. When we get to scene three, lo and behold, Look who shows up in the middle of the night to bizarrely mourn the death of Juliet. None other than the ridiculous Paris, Hmm. the old geezer who wanted to marry her the next morning, whom she could not stand, as we saw from what she told the friar she would rather do than to marry this guy. She'd rather be 
confined with bears. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> the person who had absolutely zero relationship with Juliet decides to come to a tomb in the middle of the night. And, of course, Romeo just happens to be there. And, of course, no one has any idea how to properly interpret this encounter Paris challenges Romeo. Romeo, to his credit, does try to get out of the fight, but Paris will have none of it. Well, for a character uh, so obsessed with love, uh, we do have to hand it to Romeo. Uh, He clearly has his fencing skills, (laughs) and he kills Paris. Now he's a murderer times two, uh, and we as observers don't judge him really for either one. I mean, it's a tragedy of fate. It wasn't his fault. Uh, there is a lot to explain, but at the end of the day, uh, if it had been me, I think this would have been something that really impacted my state of mind. I think, of course, it would. There's a bit of literary imagery I want to bring up here at this point, perhaps reinforcing that point, really. It's something I brought up before, but I want to bring it up again. If you remember on the balcony scene, balcony scene I pointed out that Shakespeare really plays around so much with imagery of light versus darkness. Everything Romeo and Juliet do is in the dark. They only meet in the dark, but Romeo calls Juliet the sun. There's actually a lot of light associated with the couple, even though there's also a lot of darkness that we see around. Well, when we get here, Romeo opens the tomb in order to get to Juliet, but also to put down Paris. And he looks at Juliet and he delivers these lines. A grave. Oh no, a lantern, slaughtered youth. For here lies Juliet, and her beauty makes this vault a feasting presence full of light. Death, lie thou there by a dead man interred. How oft when men are at the point of death have they been merry, which their keepers call a lightning before death. Oh, how may I call this a lightning? Oh, my love, my wife, death that hath sucked the honey of thy breath, has no power yet upon thy beauty. Thou art not conquered. Beauty's ensign yet is crimson in thy lips and in thy cheeks, and death's pale flag is not advanced there. Tybalt lies there in the bloody sheet. Oh, what more favor can I do to thee than with that hand that cut thy youth in twain to sunder his that was thine enemy. So what here I want to point out, Look at light here as a symbolic image of beauty, but it's usually a lot of times used as a symbol of wisdom. There's a clear dichotomy between right and wrong. But Romeo, he has eyes, but he can't see. He can't even see the difference of death and life. Or to paraphrase Capulet's servants, he cannot read what he's looking at because she is waking up. There is an ambiguity here between right and wrong, good and evil, love and hate, all the things Shakespeare has been playing around with this entire play. And at this moment, he is looking at a person who's really full of life. He's actually looking at a beautiful girl minutes before she's going to wake up. The love of his life, a girl strong in spirit, his intellectual equal. But ironically, all he sees is death. Let's read the rest of Romeo's soliloquy before he drinks the poison and dies. Forgive me, cousin. Ah, dear Juliet, why art thou yet so fair? Shall I believe that unsubstantial death is amorous 
and that the lean, abhorred monster keeps thee here in the dark to be his paramour. For fear of that, I still will stay with thee and never from this palace of dim night depart again. Here, here will I remain with worms that are thy chambermaids. Oh, here will I set up my everlasting rest and shake the yoke of an inauspicious stars from this world-wearied flesh. Eyes, look your last. Arms, take your last embrace. And lips, oh, you the doors of breath, seal with a righteous kiss, a dateless bargain to engrossing death. Come, bitter conduct, come, unsavory guide, thou desperate pilot, now at once, run on the dashing rocks, thy seasick weary bark. Here's to my love, he drinks. O true apothecary, thy drugs are quick, thus with a kiss I die. A tragedy of fate or character. Can you answer that? <laughs> it's all so fast. Uh, he finds out she's dead. He buys poison. He kills Paris. He sees the girl he loves dead, a death that he's not perhaps caused directly, but is somehow connected with. She's his wife. Life is so fragile. Uh, it was less than a week that Romeo was in a totally other place, and now he's facing death for the fifth time. We've got Mercutio, Tybalt, Juliet, Paris, and now his. I mean, uh, this is fate. None of this was his fault. Or is it? That's pretty murky. I know. It's a little of both. And they were begin to see Shakespeare, the philosopher, poking out his little head. A play so full of contrasts. The truth isn't so black and white. There's no clear villain. There's no clear person to blame. Uh, this barrage of death is absolutely not any one single person's fault. And no one person did this. Uh, but there does seem to be a collection of small deviations from conviction and uh, small advantages to be gained by being less than true and uh, small bursts of rashness and small compromises of uh, courage and uh, all by a group, a collective, and you put all that together and fate is created. It, I mean, is that what fate is? Well, when Friar Lawrence bust in to see Paris and Romeo dead and watch Juliet awake, his line to Juliet, I mean, this is the low point of the play for me, <laughs> is the worst thing I can imagine. So she's waking up to all this disaster, and this is his thought. Come. I'll dispose of thee among a sisterhood of holy nuns. <laughs> dispose. Dispose. That's his plan. Dispose of Juliet. Is it any wonder that Juliet, who has talked of killing herself twice, already picks up a knife and says those famous lines, Oh, happy dagger, this is my she thy sheath. There rust and let me die. What is one more ironic twist but that Romeo's death is described as being quick and pain-free. Thy drugs are quick. I can tell you I've not done it, but I don't think stabbing yourself could be described as quick <laughs> and pain-free. In fact, mm. I imagine it would be quite gruesome. Sweet Juliet gets the raw end <laughs> to the very end. And which begs the question, who had the more impulsive reaction? Oh, my but, gosh. Um, that is a good question. It's such a strange death sequence. Uh, the deaths are not sacrifices. They didn't die for each other. 
that's what we normally think of. Their lives were never even challenged. And maybe you can say that Romeo's was going to be, but it hadn't yet. Uh, it was always the perceived threat. True, and it was the perceived loss of her son that causes Mrs. Montague to die that very another night death. herself. Back Another death back in Verona. None of this should have happened. None of this makes sense. None of this is going to leave any audience satisfied with the ending. When the families make peace, nobody's like, oh, that's so sweet. Everyone's mad. You walk away disgusted from this. What a strange sensation for any author wanting to create out of a play. To use the old Greek turn of phrase, Shakespeare really does fill us with pity, but then again, terror. And if you don't know the story, you can't believe what a slaughter. How did that happen? You just witnessed it. There's not a world where two horrible families just making up would justify the sacrifice of two beautiful people. (laughs) Well, and therein lies the great mystery. I mean, of all plays, why does Romeo and Juliet stand out amongst the others? Uh, in some ways, it makes zero sense. I mean, it, it reminds us of the fragility of life, something we don't need reminding of. Uh, <laughs> it reminds us of the tyranny of society and the danger of cowardice and the risk of secrets and the fact that all of us don't understand what we see and are prone to rash judgments. But what about uh, any of that makes for good theater? Uh, what what is there that compels us to revisit and rewatch Romeo and Juliet? And I mean, what made you want to visit Verona? And what compels millions to write letters every year to Juliet? What did he? What nerve did he touch? I really don't know, <laughs> but I have to admit, I kind of feel it. I mean, I did get there. I am mesmerized. Uh, maybe we should go back to the numerology. There you go. The mysticism. Maybe it has something to do with that magical number 13 going on 14. As I said before, William Shakespeare went out of his way to associate that number with Juliet. And I believe William Shakespeare loves Juliet. Juliet was two weeks shy of being 14. The sonnet form, which has dominated this play, is characterized by 14 lines. This play, ultimately, this is where I'm going with that, is about love from beginning to end. It's about the strength of love, the dream of love, the limitations of love, the chaos of love, the hope inherent in love. The last lines of the play somewhat hint of this. Why is Juliet fascinating? Why is Romeo, for that matter? At the very end of the play, the prince has shown up. The page is given an account of what has happened, and let's read these lines. A glooming peace this morning with it brings. The sun for sorrow will not show his head. Go hence to have more talk of these sad things. Some shall be pardoned and some punished. For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. Well... It's not the cliche line of love conquers all, that's for sure. No, and it's not love is blind, love will set you free, love springs eternal, or even, well, you had me at hello. If you look at the last lines of this play, a glooming peace this morning with it brings all the way to the end to never was there a story of more woe, we are reminded that that's why it's a love story. Romeo and Juliet is a story of absolute oppositions, doubles, contrasts, stark contrasts. The only thing I can suggest 
is that unlike the cliches we just read about or expect in the movies, when we think of our real lives, when we think about what happens in real life, life is a lot more like Romeo and Juliet than it is like, I don't know, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. We can relate to every bit of us. Very few of us will live out a cliche. I mean, I know my reality hasn't been a cliche. My reality has been a lot of oppositions, oxymorons, small mistakes, misdirections, selfish deviations, fate, accidental, arbitrary. Life as a love story. It's a life, a story of fate, of tragedy. If we're lucky, maybe it's comedy. That's what we shoot for. I still like Taylor Swift's ending better. (laughs) (laughs) As a way to conclude, uh, Romeo and Juliet, I think we do need to finish by reading one of, well, one of Shakespeare's absolutely one of his most famous sonnets. I could spend an entire episode on this sonnet alone, but I won't. Sonnet 116. I do want to point out that it's an iambic pentameter, of course. It follows Shakespeare's sequence, his rhyme sequence, A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. And he writes for us a nice definition of true love, what it is not, perhaps what it is. I'm not going to interrupt you and, and analyze it line by line because I want it to be pretty. I want everyone to finish this episode enjoying the words of Shakespeare, talking about love, being about intellectual compatibility, which I think is something we see in the play. It talks about not admitting impediments. In other words, the impediments are there, but I'm not going to let them in. It's about not changing the other person, but settling in, loving over time. It uses some of the very imagery of love as a star that we see in Romeo and Juliet, a guide, a light, but maybe far away. This sonnet is kind of abstract. I understand that. And it's also very hard to understand, but people love it. It connects with the beauty of youth. There's rosy lips and there's cheeks and it's sweet and endearing. Maybe it's a real definition of Eros. I don't know. That's for each of us to decide, but. Much love to you all. Gary, let's conclude by reading Shakespearean Sonnet 116. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is ever fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark, whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but it bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved." And on that inspirational note about love, uh, we're going to wind things up today. And this week, we want to give a special shout out to our good podcast friend, Travis James, from the podcast currently on. Uh, Travis is a veteran podcaster who helped us set up our pod page. And his podcast currently speaks to current music and other events of culture and importance. And thanks, Travis, for being a great member of the podcast community. Check out our pod pages and check out Travis's podcast. Peace out.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 